You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Scott Johnson, who is using Ruby on Rails to build a COVID-19 information site, which is located at covidnearme.org. Scott, welcome to the show. Hey, Nick. It's good to talk to you again, man. Yeah, nice having you on. So do you want to start us off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about your site? Sure. Uh, my name's Scott Johnson. I'm a full-stack engineer. I'm 52 years old, which is proof that you continue, continue to write code as long as you want. And I've been shipping software now since 1987. Uh, so covidnearme.org is a side project that I started about 10 days ago when I started to see the trends on the disease. And I really wanted to know how much of this is near me because I have a wife and a son with asthma and that's a big deal. And it has been a wild ride. Yeah, it's been something else, right? Uh, I can't even comprehend the growth of this so far. I watch the data every hour of every day and it's terrifying. Yeah, no, exponential growth is, is a crazy thing. So you mentioned this has been up and running for 10 days now? Yep. Wow, that's actually pretty fast because I mean, all this came together pretty quickly, right? So how long did you actually develop the app for? Uh, the first cut on it was up after two days. Wow. Two days. That's uh, pretty fast. Was that like two full working days? Uh, no, that was two days of time here, time there. Um, and I started with a pretty narrow mandate. Basically, there's a site out of Johns Hopkins that tracks the data. But I don't like how it tracks the data because it's, it's a GIS site. And so it's very oriented towards, I've got a pretty map and ooh, look at me. And the problem that I had was I wanted something with a damn bookmark because I, as a, as a citizen, sure, I'm concerned about where this is going nationally and globally, et cetera, et cetera. But what I'm really concerned about is how the hell it affects me. Like, where is this in my, not just my country, not just my state, but my county. And so I wanted something that I could have had a bookmark that I could go to. And because the, Hopkins site is written in one of the various JavaScript frameworks. It's just not designed to do that. So I looked at the Hopkins site and I pulled and I figured out, oh, they're putting their data on GitHub. Well, I can read that. It's a CSV and I know how to parse that. And then I discovered that it was massively inconsistent and okay, that's a problem. And I pulled in somebody I work on side projects with to help. And she teased out the way the data was organized and we wrote a proper parser. And then we started looking at it and said, this is probably interesting to more than just, just us. So we figured out a domain name and it's been nights, weekends. And I took last week off from work and spent full time on it. Oh, wow. Um, so the person I do side projects with uh, works for the, works for the DOD and she has pulled us into a team that is being led by a defense innovation unit. It's got active duty servicemen. It's got defense contractors, federal employees from CDC, and volunteers from the private sector. And this team is building models to help state governors and generals predict when and where hospitals need supplies to treat patients. So it's, it's interesting. Like I'm on a Zoom call nightly that includes people from all over the world. So the site then, it's more than just a counter of known cases. It's, it's things about like availability of supplies for hospitals and stuff. We have just rolled out um, data capture for, let's say you're a nurse at Sloan, Sloan Kettering. 
we would really like to know how many ventilators you have, because these numbers, there's no federal registry for any kind of, for this type of information. There's like the most recent information that we have on, that the feds have on hospitals is bed counts. And that's at best two years old. So we have data capture forms for if you're a doctor or a nurse, tell us what you can tell us. Like, are you, do you have sufficient gloves? Um, if you're a patient, you can tell us what your hospital experience was about, was like. We also have a symptom tracker to gather medical data. And we have, we will have by the end of the day, better end user location, location tracking data about cases and, you know, how many tests are going on in Indianapolis at this particular time, et cetera. Right. Now you mentioned a symptom tracker. Is that going to be hopefully fully anonymous data, right? It is absolutely anonymous data. There's no email address. There's no registration. You basically can go on and say, these are my symptoms. Um, it's actually, the data is actually covered by what's called in EIRB, um, which is basically the way that you are legally mandate, mandated to collect data related to human testing. Um, and we actually, you know, the data is encrypted at rest. And the person I work on this with is former, former FDA. So we actually are using the proper FDA language and an actual doctor, uh, an actual military doctor signed off on the data collection form. Wow. Yeah, that sounds awesome. I'm looking forward to seeing how, because, you know, crowdsource data is pretty much as good as it gets. I mean, you know, people could lie or whatever, but that's really going to give you a good idea of like what the actual situation is. That's what we're hoping. And what we're hoping, what everyone on the team is desperately hoping to avoid is the U.S. becoming like Italy. And that's why you're seeing the lockdown orders that we're starting to see across the country. You know, New York has locked down. Ohio and Illinois have locked down. California has locked down. And what I'm hoping is that we've done it soon enough. Yeah, I really hope so. Because I, I know in New York, the last time I checked was at like 15,000 confirmed cases. And they're very, very strict on testing. Like you need to practically be dead, like in the hospital to get a test. You the, the tests are in such limited supply that you have to either be a emergency service worker or actually in the hospital. Um, and that is true. This is true, not just in New York, but also nationwide. I've got a, a good friend who went to be te who thought thought they had it, went to be tested the hospital sent them away the first time. Um, and then it was only when their symptoms worsened and they went back to the hospital that they actually administered a test and they're still waiting for results like four days later. Yeah, that's really something else. But uh, switching gears a little bit, going back to your site, you mentioned that you got this thing up and running basically in, in two days, right? Just messing around with, with Ruby on Rails. I mean, this is kind of a silly question, but what motivated you to use Ruby on Rails? Because I know you as a, yeah, you know, you're my friend. I know you've been <laughs> developing Rails for like 20 years. <laughs> well, not quite 20. But. I've been doing Rails now since 2007. And I've done a bunch of other things along the way, but I have never found anything faster to get an MVP up with than Rails. And usually speaking, for most, for most of us, whatever we build our MVP in, that tends to be what we end up building our production systems in. Right? We all like to think that we're going to retool and build it better, et cetera, but it's more like, well, we'll worry, we'll worry about scalability and we'll figure it out. So, you know, when I looked at this, basically what I had was I had a CSV feed of data and it was being updated daily. So when I thought about this, how does this turn into an application? Well, you're basically going to take the data and you're going to model it somehow. And in my case, um, since it was location data, it became a model called locations, right? Which is as simple as it is. It's basically got country, state, zip. Um, it's got lat long. 
and it's got case count, death count, and recovery count. And then it's got some other things to facilitate rollups. So the initial thing was literally nothing more than one model and then a rake task that, that downloaded the CSVs and every day from GitHub and then crunched the data. And then I wrapped a very, very simple UI that said, what, what's your country? And gave a list of countries. What's your state? What's your region? And then just built data tables out of it. Very, very simple. And uh, I've been using, as of late, I've been using a toolkit from the GoRails folks called Jumpstart Pro, which basically gives you an application framework on top of Rails, which is sort of a platform framework. So that gave me a look and feel where I didn't have to worry about what CSS toolkit, you know, a user architecture, et cetera, et cetera. It gave me all that stuff. So this basically was writing literally four controllers, uh, countries, states, counties, and zips, and just one model location. So it was really simple at the start. Right. That's pretty cool to hear. Yeah, I have not used Jumpstart Pro personally yet, but I thought it was mainly for creating like a software as a service type of application template. It's basically, so let me give you some context. So the person I do side projects with, we both do, professionally, we both do machine learning work these days. And one of the things that we have both realized is a huge drawback in the machine learning world is what's called the labeling problem. A vastly simplified view of machine learning is... You take a bunch of data, you label it, and then you crunch the data down into what's called a model, and the model is the thing that gives you predictions, okay? So, but the problem of making, ta of taking a data set and quote-unquote labeling it is a really hard problem because depending on the type of model you're building, you might need, say, 50,000 labeled data points. And when you start working at the tens of thousands, UI becomes a problem because you're concerned with how efficiently someone can look at a piece of data and say, yes, this is a cat, or yes, this is hateful, or no, this is anti-Semitic, or whatever. So we wrote a labeling platform on the side. It's called NetLabeler. And we've been, we were getting close to launching it, and then we find ourselves in a pandemic. And so we took our expertise that we had from working with large data sets and we applied it to COVID because we were concerned ourselves. We put our, we put our side project on hold. And because we were already using Jumpstart for the SaaS portion of NetLabeler, well, I simply expanded our license purchase for, for um, Jumpstart Pro. You know, now we're using that, even though this isn't a SaaS project, it's a free thing. Things got, just because Jumpstart Pro has SaaS features doesn't mean we actually have to use them. So we have all that stuff turned off. Right. Because I don't know about you, like deleting code is my favorite thing to do. So I'm sure you can just yank out all that payment gateway stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. That's pretty cool though. Okay. So Jumpstart Pro, I guess they give you a Rails friendly type of application that's like server side rendered, which sprinkles the JavaScript. Is that how that yeah. works? Yeah. So basically what he does is, is Chris, Chris Oliver, who runs uh, Go Rails, basically extracted from all the things he built into an application starting point. He furnishes it to you as a Git repo. From um, that you that you basically clone down, and then you add your own origin for your code, and then you just start adding. You know, it basically looks like a really nice looking Rails app. You know, so it's using it's using Tailwind, which I I didn't like initially, and I've become a real fan of. And you're just sort of off to the races with it very quickly. And you and I have worked together, so you know I'm basically I'm I'm mostly a backend guy. 
But if you go and look at COVID near me, you'll see it actually looks good, which is for stuff I build fairly surprising. Yeah, because I've seen some of your other sites in the past and it has like the Scott Johnson <laughs> trademark registered look to it. And this one didn't have that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and we rolled out a redesign yesterday, yesterday evening that now looks nothing like anything I've ever done before. So it's it's a bit, it's a big step up. From yeah, no, it looked good. I looked at the homepage right before the call. There was like a couple of different colored boxes, like where to go basically. Yeah. So when it comes to this application itself, are you using any features of Rails specifically? Like, I mean, when it comes to like Action Cable, like are you using WebSockets, things like that? We're or no? not using Action Cable because we didn't have, we chose to keep this really simple. For a couple for a couple of reasons, part of our technology stack is then going to end up powering a new app for this that's coming out under the same name, being developed by an open source um, group out of Seattle. So we didn't have the need for the explicit interactivity because that's going to come out of an actual app, um, and that's under development now. And I'm not sure about the launch launch time. So we didn't spend a lot of time on Action Cable, and there's at least a couple places where we should be doing a better job at interactivity than we are, and you'll see that roll over the roll out over the next couple of days. Um, the risk wizard comes to comes to mind. Okay. What about when it comes to uploading those CSV data? Is that just done through the rake task? It's not done through active storage? We don't actually need to use active storage because there's you know all we do is we do a W so the, the equivalent of a W get. I'm doing it I think with mechanized, but it's a it's a W get. Um, so we we have a rake task that runs every day at the appropriate time that basically goes and W gets the data parses it, analyzes it, rolls it up, and then correlates it with all the other things we have. Okay. So going back to your site real quick, though, I know you focus more on just getting like a tally of uh, things that are wrong with each country, but I've been using that one site called worldometers.info. Do you know that one? Sure. I didn't go and really compare their numbers to your numbers, but are they roughly the same? They're roughly the same. We, because we're using the Hopkins data as, as a core data store, um, before our crowd tra tra crowdsourcing stuff rolls out. We run at the time by which they make data publicly available. And the one objection I would make to the Hopkins data is for some idiotic reason, they the stuff they put out onto Git is 24 hours behind. Hmm. I don't understand why. Like to me, you would, I would think that if you're putting out data sources, you would want it to be the most up-to-date stuff possible, but who knows, there may be political considerations. And it's, it, it's, you know, the Emma Hopkins people are, are very, very smart. So I'm going to give them some credit. I'm just annoyed. <laughs> and the other thing that bothers me is they aren't, um, one of the reasons why we're rolling out crowdsourcing of data is because the Hopkins folk are no longer providing county level data out into the world. Um, they stopped that on March 10th. And I don't understand why they stopped that. Yeah, that's, that's really unfortunate for, I mean, I, I guess it's like, going to be a problem with most locations. But in New York, it's like, well, you have Manhattan and Queens and sure. Long Island. Like there might be 10,000 people just in Manhattan who are infected. But then it's like, well, I'm on Long Island. I kind of want to know what's going on near me, not the city. Well, that's why the crowdsourcing stuff is rolling out tonight. Um, and basically what we found is that state health departments have some of this data. And so we're going to basically enable people to provide it to basically when they find when they find data metrics, provide them back to us, and then we'll apply our data science routines to basically indicate whether this is reliable or not. Right. So going back to your app, can you think of any like notable gems that you might have sitting in your gem file that were useful for getting this project up and running? <laughs> Hell's yes. Um, just give me one sec. We made use of a couple of very good gems. Um, there's the wicked gem from I think Bruce Sneems is his name, which lets you do 
step-by-step controllers resembling an old-style Windows wizard um, and makes that process actually easy. There's the zip codes gem, which was very useful for capturing zip codes. There's a city-state gem, mechanized, which I use for which is old school, but I use for close to all my network interactions. You know, we also used, um, I know Pry is the shizzle, but I can't sort of wean myself off Awesome Print. Um, and, fi- and finally, Honey Badger for uh, error capture. Okay. So I guess maybe that's like an easy transition into if you're using Honey Badger for capturing errors, do you use any other SAS tools for like logging and metrics or transactional emails? Yes, we do. So in terms of SAS tools, we use Hatchbox for deploy. Um, Hatchbox is another... Go Rails creation. That's about 99 bucks a month because we have the cluster edition. Uh, we use simple analytics for for site-level analytics. And is it good? I don't know yet, but I've actually got an understanding of my numbers, which I usually don't have, so I kind of like that. Uh, that's 19 bucks a month. Uh, Honey Badger, as I said, I'm on a an old-school micro account, which only has one user. Um, and I think that's about 20 bucks a month, but I don't really know. Uh, we use G Suite for Office Documents and Email, and we're using, for pair programming, we use a tool called tuple.io, which is expensive. Um, it's about 30 bucks a month, but it is absolutely worth it. So I guess that's a much better experience than just sharing a desktop over Hangouts or Zoom or it something? It is unbelievably better. It's, it's, um, it's OSX only, so it's only for Mac folk, but it is phenomenally good. I've never had as good in audio quality um, do you remember the, the screen sharing tool that got bought out by Slack? Uh, hmm. I cannot think of the name, but I sort of am familiar. One, it's basically just like that, but they they charged money for it from day one. And so they've, they've got a reason to make it into a good business. So I can't believe I spent $30 a month for screen for screen sharing. And I think that's the price. And if, if, I'm, if I'm wrong, I'm sorry. But it's actually good. So the fact that I have... An environment that actually works well for pairing, that's a big deal for me. Yeah, for sure. I mean, our whole relationship was basically like 200 hours of pair programming. <laughs> that is unfortunately correct. Yep. So, I mean, I wasn't keeping a tally of how much you were spending for all of this, but we're probably approaching like 200 bucks a month, give or take, right? Yep. So probably $100 for hosting, which I didn't talk about. Uh, $100 for Hatchbox. So it's 200 220 240 yeah, it's, a, it's probably about 300 bucks a month when you include hosting. Wow. That's uh, it's getting up there for a side project. Well, it is. But if you're going to do this stuff and you're going to be serious about it, you're going to spend some money, right? And like we like to talk about side projects like they're free, et cetera. But, you know, a lot of the services driving all this stuff aren't actually free. Like you can use an AWS free tier, but that tiny amount of memory on, on a, a T2 micro basically won't even run a rail stack these days. Right. What about like the $20 a month DigitalOcean setup with like two gigs of RAM or whatever it is? That's actually fine. But of all the people in my life that ever taught me DevOps, you taught me more and better DevOps than anybody else. And one of my takeaways from DevOps is I really don't like DevOps. (laughs) Um, So when I set this all up for our NetLabeler product, which is where it originally all came from, I wanted to do deploy. I wanted to do DevOps once. And... I didn't really want to go down the Ansible route as much as I really love Ansible as a tool set. Um, so I started looking around the, the world of installing Rails and Capistrano is still a present and exists and Capistrano is still a damn mess. Vlad is still a mess. And my one comment about sort of the, the, the Rails core team is 
for whatever reason, the Rails core team views deployment as somebody else's problem, I think. And to, to me, that's madness, because if you can't deploy it, it doesn't matter, right? It just doesn't matter. And I remember all the work that you that we did around getting JobHound deployed back in back you know a couple of years ago, which is admittedly still running and still running like a champ, but it was a lot of work um, to yeah. do the Docker stuff. And so when I found Hatchbox, which does nothing but an old school, I'm gonna pro- I'm gonna provision an actual box to run a whole full stack Ruby environment. I like the idea because one of the things that I found, as much as we say you're not supposed to SSH into boxes. You're not supposed to do things server-side. We still end up at a certain scale doing that regularly. And so if, it, if, the, if the application's Dockerized, not only do I have to get into the box, I then have to get into Docker, and then anything I do between across sessions is lost, right? Whereas if it's a full-stack Ruby environment, I have an SSH history, I've got a command history, Etc. Etc. So for the way I like to operate, um, and I know you and I differ on this one because you're all about Docker, and Docker works really, really well for you because you put the time in to learn it far better than I ever did. I like having, you know, real tooling available to me. It's a different perspective, and I still use Docker for for other other projects. But for this one, I knew this was going to be the kind of thing where the day we the day it goes live, it's going to be a race. It's going to be a race to keep up with it, just because. I understand exponential growth. Right, for sure. So you're still actively hacking on this project pretty frequently then, right? Like deploying once a day or whatever? As of last night, there were 683 commits to the Git repo. Jesus. And in terms of, I've got the code metrics whenever you want them. Yeah, so I mean, I guess, how big is this app, give or take? If I do the classical rake stats, the total is uh, almost 11,000 lines of code. Um, If you look at the code lock metric, it's 5,300. The test lock, it's about 1,200 lines of code. So, I mean, this is a a real thing at this point. Right. And a lot of those lines of code are part of the Jumpstart Pro setup, right? It wasn't code that you wrote? Some small bit. There's a lot more code that I wrote than Jumpstart. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, like, I mean, I guess for clarity, Jumpstart will actually inject actual code into your project. It's not like a gem that you install, right? It's It's not a gem. That's correct. Um, and the reason why Chris took that approach, because when you build real applications, you very often need to go mess with code. And when you have something that's purely gem-based, and I'll give an example of this in a second, it is at times hard, if not impossible, to mess with things. You know, and my classic example of this is device for authentication versus something like, I forget the name of it. So anyway, when you use device, like if you look at users on a website, the single biggest problem any user has with any website is always login, right? People forget their passwords, they can't figure it out, etc. So if you want to make a custom authentication flow and you're using Devise as your backend, it can be really, really hard because even with all the callbacks Devise has, modifying Devise is a pain. It's hard, whereas if you use one of the ones that simply injects a, a real control entry application, you can go and modify it because it's just a controller. And I think it's it's the one I'm talking to talking about is um, the one from Binary Logic. And be, because Jumpstart used, chose to use Devise, that's what I went with because I didn't want to replace it. But it's not my first choice. So when Chris has an actual controller instead of building a bunch of gem functionality, I think it reflects a sensibility that is tied to sort of real-world development constraints as opposed to 
sort of ivory tower thinking about, oh, everything's got to be a component. I mean, kind of, but also, but not when there's a user flow involved. Yeah, for sure. No, I'm totally on board with having that as actual code in your app that you can modify rather than overwriting stuff and getting confused. So going back to what you said about Docker before, then it's safe to say, I guess you're, you're not using Docker at all, even in development. Even in development, I run, I just do an old school, like, and part of that's because I'm on OS X, right? Docker on, Docker on OS X has always had problems um, dating. I mean, the first time I tried to use Docker was 2014 when it was still, when the, when um, it, Fig was still a thing, right? That tells you how old school this is. I, I go back with Docker. And it just, the type of rapid iteration that I like to do, whereby you're constantly bouncing between a terminal, a REPL, an editor, on OS X, it's very hard to support that with Docker because sometimes code reloads take 30 plus seconds. Yeah, there's still that weird bug when it comes to volume performance on some Mac OS setups. Yep. And I want to use, you know, I'm, I live in a REPL and, you know, reload bang is my favorite command, you know? So like having that not be a, not be something that's close to real time, it's a huge drawback. Yeah, especially those like 30 second waits or whatever is the worst when you know it's like literally one second anytime else. Yeah, and it's and it's bad enough in Rails 6 as it is because Rails 6, there's something that's funky that goes on with Puma whereby you can make a code change and you like, for example, you have a method which you're trying to pass a parameter and it didn't allow for it, right? So that's going to throw an exception clearly. So you fix it and add an argument to the controller, to the, to the method. So you know for a fact it's fixed it and you refresh it three times um, and your development server still continues to give an error. And then you go and control C the development server, restart it, reload, and it's fine. You didn't touch the code. There's something that's odd in Rails 6 about, I think it's class caching in development, where even though it's not supposed to happen, I have a feeling it does. Hmm. You know what that actually sounds like? And I have no idea if this is right or wrong. But if Puma is spinning up maybe a couple of different processes in the background, like two or three of them, possible and it's trying to like internally load balance them like how it would in production in cluster mode maybe it is loading the old version of the code a couple of times and then you know what i yeah. mean like it needs to be running with one thread one process in development maybe maybe um, i'll make a note of that and i'll try that um the, the other possibility is it's somehow tied to all of sort of the new uh, there's a whole bunch of new code in rails 6 regarding the asset pipeline and i've always been suspicious of asset pipeline changes so like it it shouldn't affect anything but it's only came in in Rails 6, and Puma never used to have issues, so. So is Jumpstart using Webpacker then? Jumpstart is using using Webpacker and Yarn. Yeah, so it's using the newer the newer setup for the assets. So I guess going back to like the rest of your tech stack, it's using Postgres, I imagine, right? Are you using like uh, Active Job with Redis? Or Postgres, no? Redis, Sidekick, right? The standard stuff. Right. And then what? You're using Sidekick to process all the CSVs daily? Uh, we use Sidekick to handle in basically moving of encrypted data from server one to server two. There are very specific federal guidelines when it comes to human data. And basically what, we, what you want is you want to store the data encrypted at rest. And ideally you would have a separation between what's called the personally, the, the PII, the patient identifying information and the symptom data. Because what you don't want to do is you don't want to have the two of them that can be compromised in a, in a compromise in the same source. So basically what happens is data comes in um, that's symptom data. And there is, if you were to look at our symptom data model, there is no storage of symptom data. It only, what it does is it stores basically a date stamp 
and what I call a FID or a foreign identifier, which is basically a SHA3 hash. Okay, so it's the big long 128-bit hash. And then we have at the, at the top of the model, there's a whole bunch of adder accessors for each of the fields that we want to capture. Okay, so for example, one of the one of the adder accessors, one of the fields we want to capture is temperature, right? So we capture temperature and temperature time. And I don't want I want the controller to handle this um, easily. So I want to have a params.require.permit, right? So params.require symptom dot permit, and then a, a, basically a long list of symbols. But I don't want to store those anywhere. I don't even want to chance. I don't even want to chance those going into the database. So it's just a bunch of adder accessors, and then when the controller gets it, that data is split into two parts. And there's the PII part, which is really just a timestamp and a hash key. And then the other adder accessors are rolled into JSON, which is done done as a 2S has a 2S call on it, and then is basically encrypted. And then Sidekick transmits it from the user-facing part of the site to a back-end blob store. Um, and this is the good and the bad of having, you know, a partner on stuff that actually knows what they're doing, right? Because we were very, they, like, I'm a cowboy, and my partner, um, who's former FDA, is very much like, no, you are not going to be a cowboy on this. And that's also why we're, we're moving our, we're in the process of moving our hosting over to um, Google donated a bunch of hosting for, for us to put it on GCP. Because that puts us in a federal, what's called an IL-4 grade hosting environment. Because DigitalOcean is great, but it's consumer grade hosting. And by doing that, that makes the next round of medical stuff we're doing simpler and easier. So how much data are you actually saving then? I don't know that I'm at liberty to say that yet. So I will come back to you if I'm able to say that. Okay, that's no problem. I can always drop that into the show notes. You mentioned you had like a clustered mode with Hatchbox. Do you maybe want to go into that a bit? If you think about what you, what's, a, what's a cluster look like for anything like this, at the front end, there's a load balancer. Then behind that, you have N web boxes because you probably don't, you don't want to be, you don't want to have a single point of failure. Then behind that, you have at least one worker box, a database store and a Redis store. And so basically what Hatchbox does is it basically understands two or three different configurations for deployment, one of which is everything on one box, please. And the other of which is I'll generate a load balancer for you and I'll generate you know, a couple of web boxes, a worker box, and all the other boxes. So you basically, you know, you give it your DO, your DO credentials it knows how to create instances, and then it just goes off to the races. It's been ridiculously impressive how good Chris has done this, um, because it's easier for me to deploy with Hatchbox than it is for me to deploy with AWS. And I've been using AWS since two thousand since since S three shipped. I was a very early customer on S three. Right. Well, I mean, when you go the AWS route, it's like okay, you make the EC two instance, but now you're on the hook for having to actually configure that, right? Yep. So how is it with Hatchbox then? Is it just like you fill out a web form and then it's like... I deployed onto GCP last night, start to finish, in less than 30 minutes of elapsed time, most of which was working with a guy from Google to get me the proper Google Cloud SQL um, Postgres configuration URL. Wow. Yeah, that is fast. And we're talking like a legit load balancer, a couple of web apps, like there's five or six servers, right? Yep. It's impressive. Like I wouldn't be paying 99 bucks a month for um, deployment services if it wasn't good. And one of the things that I have found, I mean, you know how many side projects I've spun up over the years, and they always they always fall to the side at deploy at deployment time. 
right? Like, right. And hold on, just to interrupt you for listeners out there, it's a hell of a lot of side projects. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, other than cooking and reading, I don't have any other hobbies, right? So, so, and so when we did our first Hatchbox deploy on NetLabeler a couple months ago, what we wanted to find out was could we do it again, right? Because it's easy to do something once, it's hard to do it again sometimes. So we took one of my side projects, something called scottsfeedfinder.com, and you know, it basically is a tool for finding RSS URLs on a site, right? So for people who don't know, I, I used to run an RSS search engine called Feedster back in the, the first blogging revolution back in 2003 or 2006. And one of the things that Feedster was really good at was you told it a site and it could find an RSS feed URL or an Atom feed URL. And I started getting back into reading blogs this past year and I discovered that it's still hard to do this 17 years later, which is just madness. So I wrote my own discovery tool and then it sat on my sat on my hard disk until I found Hatchbox and I put it out there and got it deployed in, you know, less than 15 minutes, right? Which is just phenomenal for any kind of cloud deploy. Um, for a first-time configuration. And for that one, did you go with the one-box setup? Uh, that one, I just dropped it on the same cluster, right? Because, oh, okay. Because, like, I didn't mind spending because spending money on a cluster because there's always stuff I want to deploy. That's actually a, re a really interesting thing, though. You're mentioning, mentioning here that you have a cluster that you can deploy applications to managed by Hatchbox. How does it deal with isolating the applications, or is that something you don't even need to think about? Basically, it, the way Hatchbox works is everything is deployed... Um, into your home into your Unix home directory under a deploy user into a different set of files, right? So in my case, it goes home deploy COVID near me.org. And then the it's very, if you've ever done Capistrano, it looks like it's Capistrano under the hood, right? It's that same, it's got a, a releases, releases um, directory, it's got a current directory and so on. And then data isolation is handled simply by a different physical database URL, a different, a different Redis connection, et cetera. Right, but it still uses the same actual database server, right? It's still using, unless you, you can tell it to use an external database server and just give it a URL to a database server. So if you really want a different level of isolation, you can have that. So, okay, maybe going back to the COVID site, do you have this site running with multiple web servers then, like multiple? It's got a web one and a web two in front of it. And if I wanted to put, you know, five more web instances around that, I could. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah, in this case, it's it's we're not handling tons of traffic yet. Um, I think that tra amount of traffic is going to go up pretty dramatically this week, but it's not it's not huge yet. Is that something you can mention, like the overall anonymous traffic to the site? Uh, I will come back to you on that. So when it comes to these load balanced web servers running, does Hatchbox then deal with like doing a rolling restart? Um, it doesn't seem to do a rolling restart. I would like to see that feature in, and I will be. I'm certain that Chris Chris Oliver will show up when he sees this because he watches social media traffic pretty carefully. Hey, Chris, if you're doing rolling restarts, I'd love to know. I don't think you are, from what I've seen, and that would be a really great feature to justify the cluster addition and the additional pricing. Hint, hint. Nudge, nudge. Because um, one of the main reasons for that is, you know, just to be able to handle more traffic, sure, but it also means not having downtime every time you do a deploy. Yeah, and, and there's. There's nothing that I see in Hatchbox that would prevent it from saying, or turn off Web1, deploy onto Web1, do the wait time, et cetera. Like, there's nothing in there that, that stops. If he can make this much work, he can do that. Um, I think it's more he simply hasn't had the requirements for it yet. So when it comes to setting up that load balancer, then is that Nginx or HAProxy? Or... He's using Nginx underneath the hood. Okay. 
So does Hatchbox also then set up like Let's Encrypt and it set it sets up Let's Encrypt and then you can choose to and then I chose to do my Ruby deploys through Passenger just because I've I've been a fan of the Fus- of the Fusion Passenger folk guys forever. From I went from Mongrel back in the day to Fusion Passenger and I've used Fusion for most of my deploys ever since. Yeah. So I guess maybe now would be a good time to walk us through what it's like to deploy code because you mentioned you're deploying code often. How does it get from your <laughs> dev box onto the cluster? Okay. So there are two ways you can do a Hatchbox deploy. One way is you can you can push code into master, go to hat, the Hatchbox UI and click the deploy button and just wait. And then the other thing that you can do is you can go to Hatchbox and you can tell it, I want to do this with a push-based deploy like Heroku. And it does the automation over to GitHub or whatever your Git provider is to set up a hook. So for me, a deploy is at the atomic level, it's an add, a commit, a push, a change to master, a merge to develop. So let me back up. I'm a firm believer in you develop an issue branch, you merge into develop, you test it, etc. You merge into master, and then you push master, and then master is what gets deployed. Master should always be kept pristine at every point in the development cycle, because you never know when an emergency will happen that you need to actually do something specific to master. So that's our Git workflow. Issue branch moves to develop, develop moves to master, master is then deployed. Now that's in the ideal world. And right now, you know, this is a fast paced project with a, with a thin light team. There's only three technical people and one of them's an intern. So most of the development today is actually handling and ha- happening in develop. And so then the question becomes, how do you avoid breaking something in develop and it flowing to the site and shutting it down? So what I did for that is Ideally, I would have gone and hooked up a CI server. I'm not a CI expert, and I've never found CI to be particularly easy to configure. So what I did was I went old school, and I dropped into, into bin a deploy shell script. And here's the contents of the shell script. The first thing it does is it runs a rake task that I call quick test colon test. And what this does is it knows what our URL, our URL syntax is, and it has an array of the canonical URLs for the site. Like it's... One of our URLs is MISync, right, which is our new symptom tracker. And so it does, creates a user agent using Mechanize, and it walks over that array of URLs and just tries to do nothing more than, can I pull it down? Which is a way to find out is, is the site throwing a 500 error or some kind of exception, right? So this is basically what I call a sort of a brute force test, because it basically forces essentially pages to render. And if you've got an error in your, in your, whether it's in your controller or your application logic, that's going to show up locally as well. It will show as well as it will show up server side. There's a little pause statement in, in my deployer that basically stops it if it throws an error. If it doesn't throw an error, it runs um, Rails test, um, and then if that is that is good, it does an add, it does a commit, it does a push, it changes into master, it merges develop in, it pushes that, and then it switches me back to develop. So I can make a change. Give, type deploy space, whatever my commit message is, and then it's live on the site, you know, about 45 seconds later. Right. That's a pretty cool setup. Yeah. It sounds like your script is kind of similar to what you would run on a CI server or something. It is very similar on a CI server without doing that whole remote step and then going and checking for checking a web page, et cetera, because this is really, really, I mean, this is stupidly fast iteration. Like one of the features we rolled out yesterday was what we called a risk wizard, which basically talks to you about your health step by step and then attempts to give you a report card, which is 
how dangerous is it for you to go out? So, and the only category of people that will go through this and, and basically get an A is you have to be under 25 and female. Um, because one of the characteristics that we've seen coming out of China is more men are dying of the, from this than women. Yeah, at a pretty big ratio difference too. Yeah, you know, and if you start throwing in a couple of co-related health factors, like you've got asthma and diabetes, it's dangerous for you, for you to get exposed to this. You know, and, that, and this is with a health system that is still largely in good working order. Um, you read the reports that came out of Italy about a week ago, and these were the ones that really motivated me to get, my, to get this out. It was the fact that people over a certain age were being turned down for treatment because purely from a triage basis. I mean, that's terrifying. I've been to Italy. It is not a third world nation. It is a gorgeous country. Um, and Italy has the same number of healthcare beds per capita as the U.S., yeah, that's like, if you're going to say the word tragedy, like that's what that really is. I mean, that's insane that, you know, if you're 60 years old and someone comes in who's 40, suddenly it's like you just go and suffocate to death in the corner. Like that's freaking... You're, you're, you're not even being intubated. I mean, that's... and But by the same token, if you're a doctor, this is very close to wartime medicine, right? And so the doctors and, and, the doctors and nurses are having to kind of make the kind of decisions that you would see in a mobile operating unit in on, on a front line. This reminds me of watching MASH back in the 80s. Mm -hmm. It's terrifying. It really is. Now, I mean, not a fun transition, but it's like speaking of disasters, <laughs> but in the tech point of yep. view, <laughs> like what do you do for database backups and things like that? I do things that aren't as good as I should do because that's what you do. There's, there's two things that are going on. First of all, um, symptom data isn't kept on our server. So that automatic, that's handled on another server that basically has an endpoint to collect data and that's it. So the core database box that the, the end user talks to, the data on that is recompiled every day anyway. So the whole location data. So I'm not as worried about that because I can, because I can rebuild that data set at any point. Um, now that said, basically what we do is we do an old school drop the database dump um, into a directory on the server. And then there's a routine on my local box, which goes and pulls it and picks it up every day. Um, and I'd, I'd like to do more than that. But I mean, this is a 10 day old project. It's, we're lucky that we're doing that much. So does Hatchbox or maybe even Jumpstart, do they provide you the mechanism for doing that database backup? They do not. Like I think I have been so impressed by Hatchbox. I think there's a whole bunch of things that Chris could do to make that better. And I think it's mostly a matter of um, just him having time, you know, because he, he sells three different things. He sells um, the GoRail screencast server, he sells Jumpstart, and he sells Hatchbox. And I think he does other stuff on the side. So he's busy at a level I understand. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think he even has a couple or at least one standalone course as well. Yeah, he does. So, but there's like, once you start going into that deployment route, I mean, there's so many things you can do because deployment is such a crap show even today. Um, I mean, deployment is hard. No, it really is. And it's funny because I did have Chris on the show a couple months ago, and he actually talked a little bit about Laravel and how interesting that community is when it comes to deployment. Because like the creator of Laravel, you know, unlike the Rails community, they officially support, like they give you tools to do deployment in multiple different ways. That's true, but there's a couple of differences here, right? Because I spent, I, I spent a decade in the PHP world, so I understand that. I understand that space. And I know a lot of the people who actually wrote on the PHP core team. So, 
PHP is a fundamentally different deployment model because basically the deployment model amounts to SCP. So it's relatively easy for the PHP core, for the, for the Laravel core team to write a deployer because it's just not that hard. Whereas a Rails deployment is about as hard as it gets, right? Like there's like Rails is not an easy framework. Um, and I think if I had to make a guess, the reason why deployment has never been a, a core consideration for Rails, the creators of Rails, i.e. the Basecamp folks, they, they solved deployment for themselves 15 years ago when they wrote the first version of Basecamp and they have never had to think about it, right? So like, I think if you're, if you're DHH, it's not a consideration because it's an a priori assumption that deployment actually just exists. Whereas if you're a newbie starting off with Rails, like you can build a great thing and then you go to deployment and you're like, holy hell, how do I get this off my damn box? Yeah, plus there's so many different ways, right? It's like, from what I remember, I haven't been keeping track too much recently, but I'm pretty sure Basecamp, they have like their own bare metal servers and like, but then you look at something like Shopify is running on the cloud and Kubernetes with like a million instances running and then there's GitHub, like everybody has their own different setup for deployment. Everybody does, but there needs to be something for the average user. Yeah, and it sounds like that's sort of kind of what Hatchbox is giving you. But it's a SaaS product and it's expensive, right? So like that's that's a hard thing. I think Hatchbox starts at 49 bucks. Which means it's a fi- it's uh, six hundred dollars a year, right? And just to be clear, is that their price on top of what it would cost for the machines that they spin yeah, up for you? Yeah, that's their cost on top of the machines. That's a whole bunch of money, you know. And I absolutely think, I, I to me, it is a hundred percent worth it because my time is valuable. But you know, when you're doing side projects, your time, generally speaking, actually isn't valuable, right? Because a lot of times you're doing side projects to teach yourself something, and you can't afford the extra co- extra coin to spend money on services. I I I wish that the Rails core team had would make deployment a priority, and maybe it doesn't. It's not necessary because Heroku, right? Because Heroku is the what I was using before Hatchbox, because it's that same push-based deploy, and Heroku is about as as easy as it gets. But the the Heroku dynos are expensive, and Heroku has that opaque pricing model, which you can't understand. You know, whenever I see an opaque pricing model, I can't understand. I think. There's a reason for it. I'm going to get screwed by this. Yeah, that reminds me of cough, cough, AWS, cough, cough. (laughs) Well, Heroku runs on top of AWS. So they're simply taking an opaque pricing model and making it even more opaque. Um, I I love AWS to to death. I've been using it for since S3 shipped. I'm an an Amazon shareholder. Um, But my God, the pricing, like understanding AWS and AWS capacity Good Lord, I'm not smart enough. Yeah, that is something else. So going back to the site here, disaster recovery, things like that, we covered database backups. What about getting like notified if your site goes down? Does Hatchbox set up any alarms for you like that? Hatchbox or? does not, but my old friend Nick Genetekis <laughs> taught me about Uptime Robot, and it's one of the first things I set up for any new site. So right. I use that, and Uptime Robot is fantastic. It gives 50 free monitors. So I have, I have monitors on the site and on most of the site URLs. Yeah, no, it's funny. Like Uptime Robot is not a sponsor of this podcast, but I think they've been mentioned like 15 times out of like 25 episodes. (laughs) That's what happens though. When you make, like they make a good product, it's free for a reasonable amount and it's valuable. Like it tells you if your site is down every five minutes or checks it if it's up. It is fantastic. It would be interesting though, if Chris were to ever implement things into Hatchbox that hook into what cloud providers give you like DigitalOcean also gives you like more 
like low level alarms. You know, like if your disk space goes up to 80%, then they can send you an alarm so you can be uh, proactive about it instead of reactive. I know Chris, Chris is an, is an internet friend, right? So I don't know his details internally. My suspicion is like everybody else who does runs a small business, he spends his time on the parts of the business that make him the most money. And Hatchbox is one of those things that literally the feature set is potentially unlimited. But if he's not selling enough instances of it, he probably won't build those features. Um, yep. And I would love to see him do those because, you know, management of a cluster is a pain in the ass, right? I'd love to see consolidated log tracking from, from Hatchbox, right? Because I don't really want to go to Timber and get it because that's really expensive. Yeah, for sure. Well, I guess the one the one saving grace, right, is that when Chris was on the show, he did mention that eventually GoRails is going to be powered by Hatchbox. So if he's like scratching his own itch, maybe those things will get in there, even if it's not his like primary money maker. Like, and I think what's happened is like Hatchbox is the result of doing the stuff ad hoc for a whole bunch of years. When and you're right, when he puts GoRails on the Hatchbox, then it'll actually he'll actually get those features because he'll need them himself. Yep. So by the way, we didn't cover this about Hatchbox. How do you deal with secrets, um, like environment variables? Hatchbox gives, um, you were the guy who taught me about, about environment variables and beat me up about that. Um, and Hatchbox has its own environment variable facility and it just injects them into the environment when it does the deploy and I don't have credentials stored in my apps anymore. Okay, so it's easy to manage in both development and production? It is easy to manage. It doesn't, Hatchbox doesn't really touch development. So I still have an old school database.yaml for my local config. But I mean, that's just local data. I mean, that, does, that doesn't matter. And I actually have that get ignored anyway. Right. So you did mention, though, that you have like an intern working on this project as well. Are you primarily the main developer? I am the primary developer. The other person who works on it is um, a woman named Elaine Thompson, who is former FDA. And she's doing the data science and project management and some light development around different aspects of the site. So is she a Rails developer also? She is a Rails developer in training. Okay. Um, and then... We started to get calls for, if we're going to build something that's widespread, we need to localize. So our symptom tracker, for example, comes up in Spanish. Um, and I've got a, a friend of mine locally in Indianapolis who's just finishing up a computer science degree. And he, he owns translation. Um, and that's Ryan, uh, Ryan Plump. So he, he is on that and he is, he is handling that, that, that aspect of the site. So he has actual access to the repo and just updates the I-18 he files? Access, he has access to the repo and he owns, you know, ES.yaml. He, um, he owns, uh, I think we're going to do Spanish and then Russian. Um, and then we'll figure it out. Right. What about Italian? No? Um, if we can find people, like, the, the problem with translation is it's always about resources. It's finding about people who can, who can speak the language. Um, and he actually had a brilliant take on this. Um, and I'll, I'll say it. I'll, I'll put it out. In the, I'll put it out in the world because it was a, one of the smartest things I've ever I've ever heard for, for software localization. Um, he's a former restaurant worker, right? And he's been he's been doing restaurant stuff as he finishes off his degree. And his comment was, "If I go to any restaurant, there is always somebody who's English literate, but speaks their home language. I bet because I know how to because I know how to talk to them because I used to because I used to, used to be a barback. I bet I can bring my computer in." get them to sit down with me, translate a bunch of the site, and then I can upload that and then I'll get a free meal out of it. So Wow, that's a good deal. It was brilliant. And the the arrangement I worked out with him is he's going to capture their names and pictures and they'll show up as a volunteer on the site. Yeah, that's a really good idea. Yeah, I mean, Ryan is a, Ryan is a smart guy. 
The only problem with that idea, there's one flaw in that like restaurants are now closed and people aren't going out. Restaurants are now closed, but kitchen workers are still there. And oh, kitchen, that's true. Restaurants are typically divided into what's called front of house and back of house. Back of house is where you find people who speak an ethnic language. Front of house is is the receptionist, you know, or the person who takes the order. You don't want her or him. What you want is you want the uh, the Peruvian cook who speaks Spanish, or you want the person who's 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 making the doll in an Indian restaurant. Right, that makes sense. This is not my idea. This is his idea. But holy God, what a good idea! Yeah, that is a good one. Now, speaking of good ideas, like what would you say are some of your best tips and lessons learned from building this site? Um, get your workflows right. So I spent the first week doing git add, git commit, git co, git merge, etc. And then it occurred to me, well, I'm an idiot. I can just wrap those in a shell script. And, you know, paying attention to like to it's very easy when you're doing fast iteration to get so used to a, a crappy workflow that you don't think about it. But what happens is you get tired and you screw it up. And ever since I wrapped a shell script around that deployment process, I haven't had a deploy a deploy related screw up. And then the other thing is that it's a lot easier to tell someone on the project, type in bin slash gpolld instead of, you know, git pull, here's the origin name, here's the branch name. Um, so I have little shell script primitives um, wrapped around all of the common git actions, because even though I like git command line stuff, not everybody does, but I have yet to really find a good, a good git GUI client. I've got like six of them, and I've never found one that I actually like. Um, the one that I come closest to liking is, is source tree from Atlassian. And I think that thing should die in fire. <laughs> um, so by the way, I haven't tried this, but, uh, did you look at the one that was created by the same author as sublime text? I have never, I, I sublime merge. I have not looked at it closely enough. Um, like it's, it's, it's in my, it's in my toolbar and I should. Um, all right. So other tips, focus on your workflow. That's the first one. Second one is focus on your URL, your URL shortcuts. For any website you build these days, there are probably 15 different stinking URLs that you need to use at a moment's notice. It's your Git repo, it's your error tracker, it's your local host development um, site, it's your production site, etc. And so I have on my browser toolbar every one of those very cleanly identified so that I can get right to them very quickly. Um, and that makes a huge difference because otherwise you're sitting there going, all right, for this project, I use which bug tracker and so on and so on. Cause I still have a full-time job and I've got access to all and like context shifting is, is, is a hard thing at times. Yeah, for sure. So by the way, speaking of that, uh, does your site actually have an admin backend or no? Cause that seems like a good spot to put those links if you had one. Um, there is, but the problem I mean, that's actually a good idea. Um, I've never actually thought about embedding them into an admin backend. It strikes me though that that raises some quest that raises some security concerns, right? Like, do I really want to put into an admin backend access to the link which gives me access to all of my to all of my error tracking? Maybe, maybe not. It it feels like there's a difference between local tooling and remote tooling. Um, right. But you just gave me a new idea, and I, I need to think about that. So. The next idea that I would put out there is that tests, testing is important, but it doesn't have to be necessarily a classical test. Like the first tests that we wrote for this were nothing more than a rake task, which 
pulls each of the files and waits for render error, right? That is a test, even though there's not a single assertion, right? So testing tools exist in all kinds of ways. And yes, there are now actual real tests, but I didn't have them for the first five days of development. And when I found I was breaking the site regularly, I wrote my render test. And that makes that made a, made a big difference. Are you also using RuboCop or no? I have never once found a RuboCop rules file that doesn't yell at me more than I... Like, it's a signal-to-noise ratio problem. Um, RuboCop is lovely, but I have certain stylistic idioms that I use because I've been doing Ruby for a long time. And my choices don't agree with RuboCop, and it's a lot of effort to catch all of them. Yeah, once you have that muscle memory in place, it's like, can't not do that. Can't not do that. And I... I disagree with a lot of the RuboCop assumptions. RuboCop is one of the, it's one of those cases where RuboCop is technically right every damn time. But I will make I will do stylistic things in code because I have like to me code is like writing, and there are times when you will choose to break standard English writing conventions because it's a stylistic choice. And I I have the same perspective on code, and RuboCop takes great offense at my work. And that's okay. Um, and at some point, I will take the time to write a style guide for RuboCop that's that's good enough. But I have never had the time, like, because it's a lot of work. Like, I have it. I have a whole side project that's out and running and has been running in the wild for a while. That RuboCop just just eviscerate. It's hilarious. Right. It's like you run it, and yep, thousand warnings. A thousand warnings, and but it works, and it's legal, and it's legit. So then the question becomes, like, am I just a bad Ruby developer? Or, you know, like, so for example, um, one of the things that RuboCop has, has an issue with is explicit return statements when they're not necessary, right? A lot of times I have an explicit return statement because return has an explicit, is a, has an explicit flow control context. And so, for example, you have a controller. You have a bunch of code that comes after the return because you were refactoring something and it's still there. So you drop a return there, and that code never gets executed. It doesn't even have to be commented out. But RuboCop's gonna gonna barf on that every time. Um, and for me, like you and I have coded together a whole bunch, and you've seen the fluidity by which I approach coding, and the way in which, to some extent, I view code as a rough draft, right? Like yeah, for sure. To me, like if you're trying to do the final polished version of co a code base, I make you insane because my code is never like that. My code is organic and fluid, and it's always going to be ugly as sin, but I will ship faster than lots of other people. And part of it is I never, like, I grew up in the small startup, no money type context. So there was never the, the resources to get anything to, to a perfect state. And that created some bad habits among myself and sort of co-founders of mine over the years, but we always shipped. Um, and in the end, like, what's the, what's the Steve Jobs comment? Great artist ship. Yeah. No, you're one of the most prolific people I know, especially not just the coding, but the writing too. It's like, sometimes I'll go to your blog randomly. I'm like, oh, what did what did Scott blog about today? And there's like 11 articles from today. <laughs> I would love to say that, that I'm that prolific a writer, et cetera. I don't think I actually am. What it is, is I've reached the stage in my life where I can't remember stuff unless I write it down. Right. So for me, blogging, it's a lot like taking notes in a college class. I, every time I teach myself how to do something, I blog it because otherwise I'd never form the muscle memory or the conceptual memory 
that tells me how to do it. Like I'm, I'm starting to teach myself Rust. So there are these some awful blog posts about, about Rust. And I don't understand 70% of what Rust is all about. But I do know that it's a, it's a well-thought-out language that addresses one of the core holes in my computing ability, which is the ability to do something that's computationally efficient, right? Because I love my Ruby more than I've ever loved any other language, but oh my God, it is not a fast language. Right. Um, you know, so I, I, I write blog posts as I do new things in the world. There's, you know, there might be a half dozen blog posts that come out just because it's how I taught myself to do it. So usually what I do when I start something, like when I did my GCP deploy last night, first thing I did was I fired up a blog post and wrote down the steps as to how to do it. Um, because I had never used Hatchbox to do anything but DigitalOcean. And at some point, I will again need that knowledge. Like, I don't know when, but I'm, I guarantee I'll do some kind of hosting other than DO in the future. And I still, and I want to make sure I know how to do it because when you do this kind of stuff, the hard part is the time that you lose figuring stuff out, right? The doing it is actually pretty easy once you know how, but figuring it out, that's the hard part. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It sounds like the takeaway there is like the more things you do, the more coding activities, the more deploying things like all that stuff. Yeah. It comes back to why you're so prolific on the writing scene, because it's just documenting what you're doing. It's mostly documenting what I'm doing. You know, like you, you see very little you know, thought pieces for me, et cetera. It's, it tends to be practical stuff. Um, and I, I'm in the embarrassing point where I now a lot of times find my own blog posts on Google when, I'm ha- when I have the same type of problem. Yeah. It's like, damn it, I already did this. I had no idea I did this. So Scott, thanks a lot for coming on the Running In Production podcast. It was really great having you on. My pleasure. It's good to talk to you again, Nick. Yeah. So before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, things like that? I have a whole bunch, you know, so... COVIDnearme.org is what we talked about mostly. If you're concerned about COVID, please go there. If you're a medical professional, enter some data about what your hospital is running out of because that will I, I can personally guarantee that gets to somebody in a position of power to start moving resources around. Um, if you're a patient, we'd love to know your symptoms and that information is encrypted. It's not tracked back to you and it will again be fed, go to the right types of people. If you're curious about all the blogging that I do or the writing I do that Nick mentioned, uh, it's fuzzyblog.io slash blog. My GitHub is Fuzzy Group. The side project that sparked all the COVID stuff is netlabeler.com. I'm on Twitter as Fuzzy Group. And there, if you do the RSS thing and you can't find a feed, scottsfeedfinder.com. And I will send you all those URLs, Nick. Cool. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.